Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, let me start off by saying what a great delight it is to get to spend some time with you this holiday season uh, talking about one of uh, what's become my favorite subjects, which is the Magi or the wise men or the, the three kings. Um, before we begin this morning, I'm going to begin by doing what we've been taken to doing at uh, Shriner University really all this last fall semester uh, every time we gathered together. We, we decided to try to take a few calm moments at the uh, beginning of our gathering to talk about what we're doing, why we're doing it to keep each other safe and to acknowledge that, you know, what we don't know about all of this stuff, uh, especially this virus, that that could fill several books. And, uh, and so we might be doing something very differently the next time we meet. But um, I've, of course, decided to wear a mask uh, when I'm not behind this plexiglass because we did a lot of regular surveillance testing on campus when students were in session this fall semester. And we aren't doing that now that the semester's concluded. Um, and so all of us asymptomatic folks, we don't know if we're passing anything along or not. So the mask is something I can do to proactively keep the people I care about as safe as possible. And I'm not wearing the mask when I'm behind this plexiglass because I hope you'll soon see that our, our topic over the next uh, several weeks is one that I'm really passionate about. And it's easier for me to communicate with you if you can see my mouth. So that's why I've set this little piece up in place. And we may do something different next time we meet. That's okay too. We'll see if we learn anything new between now and then. And I also want to note by way of prelude that if uh, you're like me and you grew up in the Church of Christ, then you might feel just a little bit funny talking about the nativity story here at Christmas. And for those of you who didn't grow up in the Church of Christ, you might be thinking to yourself, what in the world's he talking about? <laughs> or as my sister-in-law asked my in-laws when they visited a Church of Christ in Florida one Christmas summer morning, she said, you mean we don't celebrate Christmas in the Church of Christ? <laughs> and when I was a kid, my family went all in for Christmas. Santa Claus, snowmen, reindeer presents, but no nativity, no star on top of the Christmas tree. We did sing Silent Night, Oh Come All Ye Faithful, but we never sang it during the worship service. And I can't tell you the historical or the theological reasons for us to celebrate Christmas, but not the birth of Christ. But that's the way it was when I was a kid. And then over several decades, um, Christ slowly became part of our family's Christmas celebration. And Casey, my wife, she now collects nativities and they're all over the house at Christmas time. And there's always a star, an angel now on top of the Christmas tree. And while I can't explain the historical or the theological reasons for that change either, you know, I'm really glad it occurred. I think paying attention to the birth of Christ, this, this extraordinary moment when the Word became flesh, it's absolutely worth our time and our attention and our focused celebration. And so some of you Church of Christ long haulers uh, may still be a little suspicious of a series on the Magi. But let me just beg your indulgence for a few sessions and ask you to embrace the wonder of Christ during this Christmas season. And one more caveat here at the very beginning. I want everybody to realize I'm not a theologian by training. And in fact, I'm a folklorist and a cultural analyst, and that's all I'm trying to claim to be in this uh, series of lessons on the Magi. And I'll ask a whole lot of sort of cultural questions. Don't confuse those with theological questions as we move. Okay, so let's begin with the question that probably most people are thinking to themselves. Why in the world would you be so interested in the Magi? And it actually occurred several years ago that I first became interested. Casey and I lived in the Philadelphia area for about 
17 years before we moved back to Texas in 2009. We attended a, a church there, and in 2005, during the holiday season, one of the preachers at that church, um, he encouraged the congregation to not simply pass through the Christmas season, but to see the season anew, and we'll, really with fresh eyes. My mom taught me to pay attention to the preacher, and so I tried to do as he said, and I probably could have chosen a thousand different things to focus on, but perhaps because I was knee-deep in folklore graduate studies at the time, I decided to inquire into that most interesting and enigmatic story of the visit from the Magi. Now, 15 years later, I'm still trying to understand who they were and why Matthew would include them in his nativity account, and it is impossible for me to go through the Christmas season with dulled eyes. And there could really be no painting that's more emblematic of the complications of this study and the excitement of this study and the seemingly never-ending depth of this study as Bosch's painting of the Adoration, which you see here. And if you haven't looked at it closely, I encourage you to go home and Google it and you'll see, you'll see what I mean. So that's what we're gonna study, perhaps how I got attracted to it, but why are we gonna spend four sessions studying the Magi here at the end of 2020 at the Kerrville Church of Christ? Well, I think, among other things, it helps us better understand the intersections between Scripture and the life we currently live and the lives humans have long lived. And I believe that the amazing thing about Scripture is that it is fundamentally timely. It was written for a particular moment and a particular place in the world. But it's also fundamentally timeless. And so it always transcends time and space and speaks to people in their here and now. And I think this passage on the Magi accomplishes just this sort of dual existence. And I also think it's important and worthwhile to really dig into the scripture sometimes to test our assumptions, to make sure we're paying attention, not to rewrite our theology, but to make certain our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts that they're paying attention. I think probably indifference and inattention are some of the worst things we can do. And you need to only scratch the surface of the Magi story and you start to learn one lesson very quickly. Way too often we do what we want to do with scripture, reading what we want to read instead of what is actually there. And I hope over the next four sessions with at least the Matthew account of the nativity, you'll question what you think you know about the story. So will you pray with me before we get started? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together and, and look at your Holy Scripture and to study it and to think about what it means, not only in the time in which it was written, but for us as we live our lives today. And God, we ask for your ongoing protection and, and comfort to uh, all of our friends and family and this congregation and this community and this, and this nation and this world. We, we thank you for taking that extraordinary step of becoming flesh and entering this world only to be sacrificed for all of our salvation. We thank you for that endlessly. It's in Christ's most holy name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so for this inquiry of the Magi, who they are and why they live so large in our cultural consciousness, let's start with the story of the Magi themselves as it's told in Matthew's account. And then I want to explore some interpretations of the story that we take for granted and that, we also, um, that will also help us expand our sense of who these magi might be. And I want to first illustrate that we've taken great liberties with this story 
And then secondly, I want to illustrate that there are many competing versions of the Magi story that exist in the world. And, and don't misunderstand me. I don't think there's anything wrong with having competing stories per se. It's, it's really one of the extraordinary things that makes us human. We are meaning-making creatures, and I believe that God has made us so. And these various narratives about the Magi really illustrate our attempt to make meaning. And as we explore these stories, I'm going to share some of the extraordinary artwork of the adoration with you, like you see behind me right here. And where I have the information, I'll identify who the artist of the piece was. And if you can't see the detail on the screen, you can almost certainly find the work online at a later date. And I encourage you to, to do it and to take some more time looking at it. As the Victorian writer and critic, a man named Matthew Arnold once said, and I quote, the world is forwarded by having our attention fixed on the very best things. And I think reflecting on some of this incredible artwork about the adoration, these very best things accomplishes just some of this work. So this morning, next Wednesday, and then next Sunday morning, I wanna begin looking at four versions of who the Magi were. The traditional biblical version we'll start off with, which keep in mind has thousands of years of interpretation heaped upon it. We'll look at a version which situates them in historical reality, this will probably be on Wednesday. And also on Wednesday, we'll look at a literary version from the ancient world. And then next Sunday, we'll look at a counter narrative of who they are that is strictly my creation uh, and my analysis, but which I think helps us recognize the complexity rather the simplicity of these figures. And let me be anticlimactic here at the very beginning and note that we don't know who they are. We don't know where they came from. We don't know if they were created characters or actual visitors at the birth of Christ. And we also don't know why Luke doesn't mention them in his nativity account. And in fact, this has led plenty of religious scholars to argue that, you know, there's nothing really credible about this part of Christ's birth. Who knows? I don't know. But I would also argue that our salvation, it doesn't hinge on our answers to any of the questions we might reach here and how well Matthew's nativity aligns with Luke's nativity. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we think and feel enabled to think so much about the Magi. The stakes are very low in terms of our conclusions about who or even if they were. And while all of these are kind of fascinating questions we'll spend a little time with over these next four sessions, I don't think they ask the fundamentally right question when it comes to the wise men. I think the best question is this. Why do minor characters, extraordinarily minor characters, in an epic tale of God seeking out and redeeming his people, why do they then occupy such a large place in the world's cultural consciousness? And I've got to tell you, the Magi's significance across time and space is vastly out of proportion to their biblical significance. So over the next few weeks, we'll try to work our way to an answer to that question. But first, who do people say they were? And here's the biblical account as it's found in Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. And I invite you to read along if you'd like to in your Bible. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And they quoted him. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay, let's begin by looking at what isn't in this verse. So who were these guys? Well, many of us would argue they're the most famous star followers to ever live. But for the vast majority of their journey, they didn't follow a star. Instead, they saw the king's star when it rose, Matthew tells us. Prophecy told them where to go, not the star. The star just activated their knowledge of the relevant prophecy. But very quickly, a leading and a guiding star quickly takes center stage in the story of the Magi. And in the apocryphal Gospel of James, which is also known as the Proevangelium, and one of the earliest sources of the legendary materials associated with Christ's birth, and keep in mind there is a lot of apocryphal material that try to document the, all of these sort of fantastical legends about Christ's birth. Um, the Gospel of James is important because it's one of the earliest, and so it influenced later writers. Um, in, in the Gospel of James, uh, the star eclipses all other lights in the sky, and it becomes the star of the nativity story. And following this legend, and many others follow this legend also, people like Ignatius of Antioch, who's writing in uh, 108 AD, he waxes eloquently about the star in his text also. So the star grows in great importance over time until it achieves really the ubiquitous present, uh, presence it holds during the holiday today. Now the Magi do eventually follow the star according to the Matthew account, and the same star they had seen before, though it no longer rose, it simply went before them and directed them to the place the Holy Family was staying. This occurred on a short journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which is a distance of just about six miles. Now, Sassetta's painting that you can see here tries to capture this in a way that's more accurate given Matthew's text, but it looks very strange to us. And you can actually see the star here in, in the lower right-hand quadrant of this painting. It almost looks like a sort of a, a pole stuck in the ground with a little uh, glowing bulb on top of it. But that's probably, if, if we take Matthew very literally, that would probably have to be what it looked like a little more rather than something way up in the sky. 
And of course, at least we think the star took them to Bethlehem because that's where Herod told them to go, but it could have led them in an altogether different direction. But the star achieves its fame in our telling of the narrative because we incorrectly believe a legion of writers who have told us and would eventually sing to us about how the star led the Magi to Jerusalem. Star of wonder, star of light, star with joyous beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Also, the Magi passage, or the Matthew passage rather, doesn't indicate where these wise men came from. Magi from the east, Matthew tells us. By the sixth century though, the belief that they are Persian Magi is so firmly entrenched that the Emperor Justinian commissions a mosaic of them in Persian dress in Ravenna, Italy. And you can see it here, this is, this is actually a representation of it. This identification of the Magi as, per, as Persian, it makes sense from Justinian's perspective because he lived in a time in which, in which the Christian world was really centered in Syria and Turkey and Greece and Southern Italy. And so from his understanding about what constituted the Christian world, if visitors came from the east, then they must have been Persian because the Persians were geographically east of the Christian world. And Justinian believed this so much that he also depicted the Magi as Persian when he rebuilt the Basilica in Bethlehem in 565. And when the armies of Persia invaded Bethlehem in 614, historians tell us, although there's, this is very likely to be legend too, but some historians tell us they believe that they spared the basilica. They did do that. The Persians didn't destroy the basilica in Bethlehem because they recognized their national costume in the mosaics of the wise men. So this Persian origin argument of the Magi, it also supported by Matthew's use of the Greek word Magoi, which is borrowed from the Persian Magus. And there is ample historical evidence that there was in fact an influential cast of stargazers and astrologers called Magi who were Persian Zoroastrian priests. We'll talk a little bit more about them probably on Wednesday. But in Matthew's account, who they are is never definitively addressed. And we don't know how many of them there were either, though most of us are convinced there were three. That's probably because that interpretation matches prophecy from the Old Testament like Psalm 72.10, which says the Redeemer will be visited by kings from three locations, Tarshish, Arabia, and Seba. We take three locations and impose our contemporary understanding of kingship and assume there can only be one king from each of these locations. And we conclude, therefore, their number must be three. Now, early Christian art is no consistent witness to their number either. A painting in the cemetery of St. Peter's and Marcellinius shows two. A painting in the Lateran Museum shows three magi. A carving in the cemetery of Domutilla shows four. A vase in the Kircher Museum indicates there were eight of them, of all things. And this third century sarcophagus shows, again, two magi visiting the Christ child. And we don't know their names either from Matthew's passage, but many of you could identify the names we call them by today. Balthazar, Melchior, and Gaspar, or Casper, the C and the G change regularly. And Justinian's mosaic already reflected these names when he constructed it. 
You can see those now traditional names right at the very top of the mosaic there, I presume, over um, the representation of each one of them. Now, the earliest source we can identify regarding their names is actually from a 5th century chronicle that was originally written in Greek. We don't have that manuscript, and we only know about it from an 8th century Latin translation of the work, which identifies the Magi as Bethesaria, Melichior, and Gathspa. And you can sort of hear the derivative phonetics of our contemporary pronunciation in those names. But they've been referred to by many other names throughout history. In the third century, a Syrian writer refers to them as Hormizda, king of Persia, uh, Yazdegerd, king of Saba, and Perizad, king of Sheba. And Syriac Christians are known to have called them Larvandad, Gushnaspa, and Hormizdas. Ethiopians referred to them as Hor and Karsudan and Basanader, and the Armenians still had other names for them that I can't even come close to pronouncing. It's also the case we don't know what they look like in terms of their ethnicity or age either. And it's really an 8th century manuscript from Ireland that offers some of the first details about what they look like, explaining that they represent the three ages of man, youth, middle age, and old age. And in this manuscript, they no longer have come to represent Persia exclusively, but they represent the three races of humans, such as those races were conceived of at the time, European, African, and Asian. And the venerable, the venerable Bede, writing in Britain in the 8th century, confirmed these ages and races and suggested that each magi was an offspring of one of Noah's three sons who repopulated the world after the flood. And he summarized the tale as it was told in his day like this, and I quote, The magi were the ones who, give, who gave gifts to the Lord. The first is said to have been Melchior, an old man with white hair and a long beard, who offered gold to the Lord as to a king. The second, Gaspard by name, young and beardless and ruddy complexioned, honored him as God by his gift of incense, an oblation worthy of divinity. The third, black-skinned and heavily bearded, named Balthazar, by his gift of myrrh testified to the Son of Man who was to die." End quote. And so Bede articulates one version of how ages and ethnicities were distributed, though artists and writers uh, suggest all of this matching of names uh, with ages and races. It's very much a fluid idea. Sometimes Melchior is an old man, sometimes Melchior is a young man. And depending on who you're talking to, what you're looking at, which tale you're looking, those, those can change up uh, quite a bit. But the importance of separating their ages is explained in one of the legendary tales surrounding the Magi. It is said that Melchior, the elderly wise man, went first into the stable where Jesus was. And there he found not a baby, but an old man who had great wisdom. Balthazar went next into the stable, and there he encountered not a baby, but a man his own age, full of patience. And when Gaspar entered alone, he encountered not a baby, but a young man full of energy and passion and inspiration. And after comparing notes of their separate encounters, the three wise men entered together and found the baby Jesus and gave him the gifts. And the point of the story seems to be that Christ was all and for all 
regardless of one's ethnicity or age. And I would say, I think that's a pretty radical idea if that's what Matthew intended to suggest. It seems perfectly true to us today, but that would have been a pretty radical idea for Matthew's audience. And although we don't refer to the Magi, uh, or not, I should say, as, although we do refer to the Magi as both wise men and kings, we don't see them identified as kings in Matthew's passage. Nonetheless, this notion of their kingship was evident at least by the third century because Tertullian, who was writing in about 200 AD, and Origen, who wrote in the late second and, and early third centuries, both referenced the Magi as kings in their writings at the time. I think they probably came to this conclusion because uh, they were reading passages like Psalm 72, which references gifts being delivered from kings. Isaiah 60 would have been important to this interpretation of their status as kings as well. And Isaiah 60 verse 3 reads, Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Isaiah 49.23 similarly says, Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. And Psalms 68.29 makes this reference. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts which many interpreted as signaling that these visitors must have been kings, whatever else they may have been. Now, Augustine, writing in the fourth century, he identifies them as kings because he believes the kingly piety of the Magi is meant to contrast with the kingly impiousness of Herod. And putting those two contrasting images together, he believes makes a powerful moral uh, point. And as the legend of the Magi developed over time, some writers vehemently opposed the notion of these visitors as kings. John Calvin is perhaps the most famous of these. He felt surprisingly strong about this issue. And he said of uh, those who referred to these visitors as kings, and I, I quote here, he says, beyond all doubt, those people have been stupefied by a righteous judgment of God that all might laugh at their gross ignorance. Calvin was a passionate man, we know that for sure, but nonetheless, that still seems just a little bit extreme of an interpretation there. So Matthew doesn't try to explain the significance of the Magi's gifts either, um, though he does tell us they were gold and frankincense and myrrh. But humans have spent a lot of time and intellectual energy trying to figure out why the Magi would bring these gifts to the baby Jesus. And probably the most common interpretation of the gifts is articulated in the Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Now this was a classic, now, now classic Christmas song that first appeared in print in uh, 1863, written by a guy named John Henry Hopkins Jr. He was an ordained deacon in the Episcopal Church and he had been charged with putting on an elaborate holiday pageant um, uh, for students at the General Theological Seminary in New York City in 1957. And he wrote this song for that pageant while he was serving as the seminary's music director. And the words follow like this, and you know them well. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, war and mountain, following yonder star. And the refrain is, O star of wonder, star of light, 
star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. And the first verse says, born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. And so gold here was to acknowledge Jesus's kingship. Second verse, frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising, voices raising, worshiping God on high. And here the argument is frankincense was brought to acknowledge Jesus's divinity. Third verse, myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone cold tomb. And here myrrh is to honor his humanity and his inevitable death. And Hopkins summarizes all of this in the last verse of his song. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, sounds through the earth and skies. I love that song, and I love those interpretations of the gifts. But while that's probably our most common interpretation of these gifts, there have been lots of other interpretations over time. St. Bernard, who was writing in the 12th century, would argue that the gold was to relieve the Holy Family's poverty, incense would provide respite from the stench of the stable, and myrrh would drive away the vermin. A very practical fellow, that St. Bernard. Another ancient tale suggests the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh were brought to test the baby Jesus. If he chose the gold, then he was meant to be a king. If he took the frankincense, he was to be a priest. If he took the myrrh, it meant he was to be a healer. And the child took all three, and the Magi knew they had found a savior. And some of the most interesting legends surrounding these gifts are that they had simply been held by the Magi. They were originally perhaps in Adam's possession. Noah took them aboard the ark. Shem concealed them after the flood, and he left them for safekeeping with the Magi. We're going to unpack that a little bit more when we talk about what happened to the Magi after they left um, uh, the Christ child. But um, So ho hold on to that for just a few minutes or actually a few more sessions. And still others would argue that these gifts would appear again in the gospel account. This is not the only time that we see them. That they would show up again as the golden drinking chalice at the Last Supper, as the wood for the spear that pierced the side of Christ when he was on the cross, and as part of the process for preparing Christ's body for entering the tomb. And in John of Hildensheim's late Middle Ages account of the history of the Magi, and we're going to talk about him more in, in uh, the next session or two, and, and keep in mind, he, he's written the history of the Magi, but you should consider that term history very loosely. It's not a lot of historical inquiry he actually went through. He was really documenting legends of the time. Um, he writes that we learn that Melchior gave as his gift not just gold, but actually 30 gilt pennies. And the story goes that Abraham's father originally forged the gold pieces. Abraham used the pennies to purchase his burial spot. Joseph was sold by his brothers into Egypt for some of these pennies. And when he died, these pennies were sent into the land of Saba to buy spices and ornaments for his burial. 
The queen of Saba or Sheba would bring them back to Jerusalem when she visited Solomon and brought all of these gifts with her. And when Jerusalem was destroyed, the pennies were then taken to Arabia where they became the pride of Melchior's treasury. And in many stories of the visit by the Magi, gifts were given and gifts were received. And several authors document that the Magi were the recipients of gifts from the Christ child. Gaspar received the gift of charity and spiritual wealth. Melchior received the gift of humility and truth. And Balthasar received the gift of faith. And again, we'll come back and revisit this notion of gifts received in a few weeks. Marco Polo was very interested in some of those in his accounts of what happened to the Magi. So Matthew also doesn't tell us what happened to the Magi after they left the Christ child, only that they went home by another way, although 2,000 years of speculation has been generated about what happens to them next. And again, we'll explore all of this before we conclude this, this series. And finally, Matthew doesn't tell us about the context in which um, the Magi find the baby Jesus. Now, if you were paying attention, you'll know that while our nativity scenes put the um, uh, shepherds and the magi all together right there at the stable, Matthew actually says they went to the house to see them. And I think most of us are comfortable with, you know, there had to be some sort of time lag here between when the shepherds were there, perhaps in the cave or the stable, and, and then when the magi came to visit when they had gone to a house. And yet I also think that most of us imagine something right out of Silent Night when the magi were there visiting. Peaceful, calm, a suitable spot, for quiet devotion. Maybe, maybe not. And I love this altarpiece by Fabriano, which paints a little different picture of the context of the Magi's arrival. And just one quick aside, as, you're, as I'm showing you all of these um, uh, images, you'll notice that uh, Jesus is frequently depicted um, not in swaddling clothes, which is a lot of times part of the traditional Christmas story, but simply without any clothes on at all, naked because clothes were a result of sin. And so often artists uh, uh, want to represent the Christ child's sinlessness by throwing into relief the child's um, lack of clothes when everyone around him is represented in clothes. Okay, but back, back to the context of this painting. Here are some of the details of this altarpiece. If you see the youngest Magi, he's the one right there uh, sort of standing uh, full upright in the screen. He's wearing those uh, very flamboyant uh, red hose. And you'll notice there's somebody behind him who's kneeling down, stealing the spurs uh, that he was wearing. And nobody really knows what these two women are doing behind Mary. There, this is another detail from that picture. Although some critics believe they have snatched the gold that the oldest Magi has brought to the Holy Family and they have uh, snatched it away and are sure to do something else with it. And then up in the upper left-hand corner, this is a little bit hard to see, but I think you can make it out. There's this guy getting attacked up there. He's getting beaten up by all these other people. And I love this altarpiece so much because in so many ways, this is a more accurate representation of the world Christ has come into. Um, we don't know for sure, Matthew doesn't tell us, but this, job, but this painting, I think, does a wonderful job of reminding us that much of what we think we know about the Magi's visit has been constructed by our imaginations. 
And so it's clear that we've engaged in some significant creative embellishments to Matthew's account of the visit of the Magi in chapter two of his gospel. And maybe we should ask ourselves, is there anything that we know about the Magi referenced in these passages that might help us understand who they were? And depending on who you talk to or who you're reading, you'll get a different version of what Matthew must have meant when he referenced the Magi. But I wanna start by saying, let's just take him at his word, that he's referring to a category of people as well as to practitioners of some sort of magic in whatever form this magic takes. And I think it's fair that both of those meanings of the word could have and probably would have been interpreted by Matthew's audience in just that way. And we know that one of the earliest mentions of the Magi as a category of people is by the Greek historian Herodotus, who wrote in 425 BC. Okay, so this is 425 BC. And he argues, and, and again, if you read uh, Herodotus, there is some history there. There's a whole lot of legend there as well, and it's always hard to know what he's actually documenting at any given time. But he says that um, they came from the region of Medea in what's now we know of as northwestern Iraq or Kurdistan. And he says that they were one of six original tribes that made up the nation of the Medes. And they really made their political ascension during the Neo-Babylonian period. Um, remember that it's the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which in 586 BC and under King Nebuchadnezzar is gonna sweep away the Assyrians in the east and is going to come and conquer Jerusalem and will destroy the temple that Solomon has built. Now the Neo-Babylonian Empire, it's really short-lived and about 50 years after conquering Jerusalem, the Persian King Cyrus the Great, this is in about 539 BC, he's gonna defeat the Neo-Babylonians and he's going to establish the Achaemenid Persian Empire. You probably remember all of this, or at least uh, echoes of all of this from the story of Daniel, uh, Daniel who was active in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and who predicted Cyrus's victory. And although really very little is known about the Magi before they become associated with these empires, we can imagine that they were probably tribal uh, shamans of some sort. So if we, if we look at what other tribal shamans look like, we can sort of begin to think about what they may have been before they became associated with the, these empires. And that, that meant that they probably would have been practicing some sort of primitive fortune telling and been interested in astrology and they probably would have had some sort of understanding of very primitive medicine. The Roman historian Pliny and, and then later Tacitus associated them with sorcery and magic. And Jerome, a Christian author who wrote in the fourth century AD, uh, AD, he was identifying three classes of magi by the time he was writing. So remember, this is after uh, Christ's death. And he said that there were some magis who were pra practitioners of demonic magic, there were some magi who were experts in astronomy, and there were some magi who reflected a caste of priest. And it's the prophet Zoaster who emerged during the time of Cyrus the Great um, um, and, and who helped establish this Achaemenid Empire and helped Zoastrianism became the empire's, or become the empire's official religion. Now like the Jewish religion, Zoroastrianism, it didn't allow the worship of idols and instead worshiped one God, uh, what they refer to as Ahura Mazada. 
And like the Jews, they look forward to the coming of a savior Messiah. And by the time Cyrus's son, Cambyses II, took power over the empire, the Magi appear to have made themselves official Zoroastrian priest of the Persian Empire. Okay, so they started off as tribal shamans through their own ingenuity or, or dumb luck. They get associated with these empires and they slowly begin to make themselves really king's makers. And so as the empire flourished, so did the Zoroastrian, Zoroastrian Magi. And eventually, and I think this is probably important to the nativity story, the Magi established themselves as king makers of the empire and no one could claim the throne without approval of the Magi. So I think we'll stop here today. We're gonna to continue this on Wednesday night. We'll be back here next Sunday morning for class uh, to continue this story. And then the following Wednesday, we will conclude the study of the Magi. I so appreciate you being here. Let's, let's end this with a prayer real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word among friends um, who want to know more about you, who desire to have a closer relationship to you. And dear Lord, as always, we pray that anything that helps to promote the good news um, your son brought to us, that we remember those things. And anything that does not, we uh, forget it as quickly as it's said. Dear Heavenly Father, watch over us. Help us to enjoy and glorify you during this worship service. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you very much.